First one is, first section, Genesis 26. Genesis 26, we'll read 1 to 17. 26, 1 to 17. Here, Isaac will go to Gerar because of a famine. And we could summarize the whole of Genesis 26 as a mixture of difficulties and delights, which is typical of the Christian life, that there will be difficulties, but in the midst of difficulties, God intersperses those difficulties with delights or blessings to encourage us and give us hope to press on. And this is what we'll see in the life of Isaac throughout this chapter. Firstly, chapter 26, verse 1. Now, there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. And I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and will give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac lived in Gerar. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he was afraid to say, My wife, thinking, The men of the place might kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is beautiful. And it came about when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife Rebekah. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, certainly she is your wife. How then did you say, She is my sister? And Isaac said to him, Because I said, Lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech charged all the people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy. For he had possessions of flocks and herds and a great household, so that the Philistines envied him. Now all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines stopped up by filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are too powerful for us. And Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. In verse 1, we see that there's another famine in the land. And this is not the same famine that occurred in Abraham's day. Another one occurred in Isaac's day. And so first we note that even though Isaac is a righteous man, a famine occurs in his land and disrupts his livelihood disrupts his normal day-to-day activities. A famine so severe that he had to move away from there in order to survive for him, his household, and all of his flocks and herds. They had to move elsewhere. It's not unusual for there to be difficulties for the righteous. There's no 
nothing unusual or strange about that. It says that it had happened in Abraham's day too. We remember that that happened in Abraham's day in Genesis chapter 12, so that he had to go to Egypt far away, farther away than Isaac has to go. God warns Isaac or tells Isaac, don't go to Egypt. In, in this case, just go to the land of the Philistines, which is very near the land of Israel, or it's within the land of Israel, just um, to the west and to the south of it. This is where he has to go. Remember that even Noah in the book of Genesis underwent a kind of exile. He could not live on the earth for a whole year. He had to live in the ark. Noah had to do so. Abraham and Lot also had to experience some kind of disruption in their life and circumstances because of the sin of the people of Sodom. Because of the, their sin and because of the destruction God brought on them, it impacted them. It overflowed the punishment or the implications of it, consequences of it overflowed to them so that they had difficulties and hardships in their own life. It's not unusual for this to happen. We know that this happened in the case of Daniel the prophet. He was a youth when he was exiled and sent far away, hundreds of miles away to the land of the Babylonians. And he had to live there instead of in his own native land. This happened also to Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Jeremiah, he kept telling the people to listen to God's word, repent of sin, Obey the Babylonians, they're going to come and invade. So just submit to them and it'll only last 70 years. And if you do what God says to you under the Babylonians, it'll be okay with you. But they said no. The remnant said no, no, no. And they kidnapped him and took him to Egypt. The place he told them not to go, they made him go into Egypt. Similarly with even Jesus our Lord. Jesus, our Lord, the sins of the people overflowed and he was impacted by them to the to the extent that he was put on a cross. He was put on a cross undeserved, undeservingly. He was placed upon a cross and crucified. So it's not an unusual thing for wickedness to be in the land and then a trial to come or a punishment to come. And the, the righteous, they have to deal with the consequences of it. Then it says, he went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. He went to this locality or this city and the area that's known as Gerar. It belongs to the Philistines, which is near the land of Canaan. Now, this word Abimelech, it may be a word such as the word Pharaoh or the word Caesar. It might be a word like that. It may be a personal name, but it may be more than a personal name or more general than a personal name. That is a general name for the king, like the word Pharaoh is or emperor for the Caesar. Sometimes when we say the Caesar or Caesar said, there's a personal name of the Caesar, but we know Caesar means the emperor. And I say this because it may be the same king who lived in the time of Abraham, or it may be a different one. And in any uh, case, we should not look at this as an impossibility or a contradiction, as some skeptics like to make it. Well, before he actually goes, God gives him a word. He gives him a word of instruction, 
And he also gives him a word of promise and assurance, a word of instruction and warning in verses two to three. The first one, the warning or the instruction in verse two, the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and bless you. Don't go to Egypt. We're not told why exactly not to go to Egypt. He's not told. Um, In Abraham's case, it was okay to go to Egypt. But in this case, he's saying, don't go to Egypt. Uh, Just go to the Philistines. And there I will be with you. The land of the Philistines technically actually will and should belong to the descendants of Abraham, which it will happen in the time of Joshua and the kings of Israel. Uh, eventually they will defeat the Philistines and control that territory, at least some of that territory of the Philistines. So then, verses 3 to 5, the promise or the assurance, the hope. Verse 3, I will be with you. So even when he has to go away from his familiar land and territory to a strange land, God promises, I will be with you, which is similar to what Christ says when he tells us to preach the gospel to all the nations. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, he says, and lo, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. Even when we go to faraway places and strange places, I will be with you and bless you. And that blessing we will see throughout this chapter He experiences both in a material, physical sense and in a spiritual sense. Those blessings come to him. And then he says, to you and to your descendants, I will give all these lands. To you and to your descendants. They will belong to Isaac and to his physical descendants. But I also believe there's a spiritual component to it because Isaac never possessed all the land of Canaan. And his descendants never possessed all the land of Canaan, even in the days of the kings of Israel. Even in the days of Saul, David, and Solomon, the three kings who reigned for about 40 years each, for 120 years. They conquered much of that area, but they didn't conquer all of that area. And yet God says, I'll give all these lands to you and to your descendants. Well, he showed examples of that or tokens of that over the years, over the history of Israel, but he never gave it to them completely. But one day they will, the the believers among them and all of us, we will possess not only that land, but the whole earth. The new heavens and the new earth will belong to us. And then verse three, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. The oath which he swore to Abraham. What is this oath? What does this oath to Abraham entail? It is primarily a spiritual component. Yes, there's physical parts, which we'll see in just a moment. We just saw and we will see again. There is a physical component, but primarily the center is Christ. Christ and those who are saved by faith in Christ. Verse 4, and I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and will give your descendants all these lands and 
I believe in the last part of verse 4, the NASB says, and by your descendants in the plural. I think it should actually be singular. Your and by your descendant, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And why should, should, we, should we say so? For one, we know that he, this is a promise that is being repeated from Genesis 15, 5 and 22, 18. Uh, 12, 3, 15, 5 and 22, 18, that these, this promise of the descendant in the singular. We can tell from verse 4 that there's going to be physical descendants who possess these lands, but even those the physical descendants won't possess it in the full sense. So there must be a spiritual, ultimate, eternal implication to it. And that becomes very clear by that last phrase in verse 4, and even by the last phrase in verse 3, the oath which I swore to your father Abraham, verse 4, and by your single descendant, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now, why should we keep this in mind that Abraham believed in this and that God was indeed meaning Christ and those who belong to Christ? How can we know that that is the case? One, one place to look is Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verse 16. Romans 4, 16. For this reason, it is by faith. We'll read 16 and following. For this reason, it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace, in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. In the sight of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed, in order that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully assured that he had, what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness." Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Abraham had this faith that he would be the father of many nations. And he knew that he would begin to see the fulfillment of that by the birth of Isaac. But his hope was not in Isaac. His hope was in the promise of God that he would be the father of many nations. Well then, how is that going to be accomplished? Galatians chapter 3. 
How specifically will that be accomplished? Galatians 3.16. 3.16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. One seed, he says. This was what Abraham believed. The promise that Abraham believed, the promise that was spoken to Abraham and to his seed, singular seed. The promise was to Abraham and to his singular seed. Who is the singular seed? Christ, verse 16 says. And then verse 19. Verse 19. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed, singular, should come to whom the promise had been made. God promised to Abraham and he promised to Christ to give them descendants from many nations. That has to be a spiritual fulfillment, a spiritual meaning. And that is the one gospel from Genesis to Revelation. That's what is being preached here. And he swore this by an oath. We know he swore this, that this would happen in this way, in a spiritual sense, by an oath from Hebrews 6. Hebrews chapter 6. He says in 6.13, Hebrews 6.13, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And thus, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath is given as confirmation to, the, to end every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath in order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge and laying hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Clearly, in Genesis, the oath which was sworn to, uh, which God swore to Abraham, has to do with Christ and the assurance and hope of salvation. For all who believe in Christ. Yes, it has to happen with physical descendants. And yes, there will be uh, a numerous or populous nation that will come. But that's all necessary for Christ to be born into the world and die on the cross and save us from our sins. Verse 5, Genesis 26, 5. 26.5 says... Because Abraham obeyed me. Let's stop right there. The word because may throw you off. The word because may also make you think that we're talking about salvation or blessings 
by works. Salvation by works. The word because might make you think that way. And some misinterpreters take it that way and they say, see there, Abraham was saved by works. Abraham was saved by works. Jews are saved by works. They were saved by works in the Old Testament and they're even saved by works today. Some believe like that. No, salvation is not by works at no period of time for Jew or Gentile. And salvation in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is always by the gift of faith in Christ. Christ's death and resurrection. Only one gospel, one covenant of grace, one means of salvation. That's the only way. So why is the word because used? The word because is used in order to encourage us in obedience and that God is mindful of our faithfulness and obedience to his word. That's why the word because is there. Now, we have examples of that even in the New Testament that clearly teaches salvation by grace through faith in Christ. We have examples of that. One example is in James chapter 2. Right? In James chapter 2. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Can that faith? He's talking about a vacuous, empty faith. Can that kind of faith save him? And he says, basically, no. He says that from chapter 2, 14 until the end of the chapter, 226. He says in 226, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So if the works are there, it assures us that we have true faith. That's the point James is making. And James even uses the example of Abraham to say the same thing. He says in 2.21, James 2.21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, when he speaks this way, he means it's not the mere profession of faith. It's not an empty, futile, vacuous faith. It's not a fake faith that saves anybody. But it's the manifestation of the faith that shows that you are justified. That's what he's saying. It has to be a clear, demonstrable um, appearance of this faith. And then you know, and others know, that you truly believe. That's the point James is making. Some have taken James to contradict Paul in this matter. But Paul, after telling us that we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast, what does he say in Ephesians 2.10? Right after Ephesians 2.8 and 9. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
The good works which God has prepared beforehand are our obligation. We should walk in them. God created us in Christ for that purpose. But clearly Paul is not saying we're saved by them. He already explained in verses 8 and 9, we're saved by grace through faith. But the faith that saves us is a faith that produces fruit. Right. That's what he means in verse 10, Ephesians 2.10. Furthermore, let's clarify, who is the one who actually produces these good works in us that must be manifested in us? Who is the one who does it? Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's the... Genesis 26, verse 5 part, because Abraham obeyed me, right? That is the Ephesians 2.10 part. That is the James 2.14-26 part. Philippians 2.12. But how are these good works actually produced? Yes, we are the ones doing it, but who's causing us to do it? Who's enabling us to do it? Philippians 2.13 says... For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is the one working in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. And therefore, we have to say, like we said earlier, we actually do the works, but God is. In His grace, He gives us this gift of reward, this gift of assurance, this gift of hope, even though He's doing it through us. And He does it through us in order to assure us by what we see in a transformed life that we actually belong to Him. And in the end, He's going to give us things we don't deserve. He's going to give us things we don't deserve. That's why he says, because Abraham obeyed me. He's trying to encourage Isaac and all of us to obey like Abraham did. Right. Genesis 26, 5. 26, 5. Not only did Abraham obey, but notice how this is emphasized or specified. 26, 5. And kept my charge... My commandments, my statutes, and my laws. I believe God is emphasizing with these terms the many and various and even meticulous ways in which Abraham conducted his life before God Almighty. This is the way Abraham followed his, um, his Lord. He did not follow his Lord in a haphazard way in a man-centered way, in a man-invented way, he followed the Lord according to the way the Lord directed him, the way the Lord commanded him. He was resolved to do the will of God. The one who does the will of God abides forever. 1 John 2, 17. 
Do we have evidence that God actually told him to do certain things? Yes, we do. Look, for example, at chapter 18. Chapter 18. Chapter 18, verse 19. 18, 19. The Lord is speaking to Abraham. 18, 19. For I have chosen him in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. God chose Abraham. Why? That he might command his children and his household. If he's commanding them, he must know what to command, right? Of course. And then it says, to keep the way of the Lord. So he must know what the way of the Lord is for him to teach that to his children and household. And righteousness and justice are expected, which means he must have known the way of righteousness and the way of justice. And he also knows about the promise to come in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. We have just spoken about these promises. He knows all these things according to chapter 18, verse 19. Chapter 20, verse 7. Chapter 20, verse 7. God tells the king that Abraham is a prophet. Abraham is a prophet. We know that God appeared to him several times. We know from Genesis 18, 19, he knew with specificity. We know from Genesis 26, verse 5, he knew with specificity what he must obey and do. He had concrete knowledge of the will of God, and he was faithful to that. Not to say he was perfect. He he sinned, but he did not revel in his sin. He did not practice his sin. When he sinned, he would repent of sin. He would have guilt and repent of his sin. That's the way of all Christians. From the Old Testament Christians to the New Testament Christians. That's the way of all Christians. We are never perfect, completely perfect, though we should strive for perfection. Abraham was that way. Doing the will of God by the word of God is what he desired. All right, so this is God's oracle to Isaac. A summary, instruction and promises here. Verses 6 to 11. Abraham obeys God. So Abraham lived in Gerar. He obeyed God. He didn't go to Egypt. He didn't go to Mesopotamia. He didn't go anywhere else. He went to Gerar. Even though it was foreign territory, he went there. And in verses 7 to 11, we have an incident that's akin to what happened with Abraham in Genesis 12 and 20. Isaac goes to foreign territory. He's unsure about how the men of that place are going to react to his wife, his beautiful wife. And we know that she was beautiful from chapter 24, Rebecca was. And even in verse 7, it says, for she is beautiful. And... Then in verse 8, when he had been there a long time, Abimelech king of the Philistines looked out through a window 
And he saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife, Rebekah. He had been there a long time. We don't know how long that long time was, but um, it may have been several months, may have been a year or two or even more. We don't know how long it was, but a long time had passed, and this happens. Um, Verse 9, Abimelech confronts Isaac. Behold, certainly she is your wife. How then did you say she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, Because I said, lest I die on account of her. He knew that though though adultery was universally considered sinful, that the men of the place might kill him, because in some places, some parts of the world, murder is less of a crime or less of a sin in the eyes of man than committing adultery. So they would rather commit murder than commit adultery. And he thought that those people would be like that. And in a sense they were because verse 10 in Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily, he says, might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. They might have easily done so, suspecting she was single. Right. By the way, you might wonder too, how is it that they wouldn't know if they, are, if they are in the same home, how would they not know that they were husband and wife? Well, remember, in a nomadic tent life with a huge household, not necessarily just in your own nuclear family, but in your household, the men and the women don't dwell or, and sleep in the same tent. They don't always do so. Remember at the end of, end of Genesis 24, it says, 24:67. it says, Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. Sarah's tent. So husband and wife did not always dwell and sleep in the same tent. They were in separate ones. So if they were in separate ones and that practice is also continuing with Isaac, they weren't always together or always in the same tent. In that way, the people might have thought, oh, okay, she's in the household or she's a relative, she's a sister, something like that. But then verse 11. So Abimelech charged all the people saying, he who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. This means that here he's taking adultery very seriously. Even though he's a foreigner, an idolater, an unbeliever, he's taking adultery so seriously that if anybody would try to touch Isaac or his wife, he says there's a death sentence on that man. Chapter 26, 12, 12 and following. Abraham is blessed. He's in a foreign land. He's in a predicament in his household, but God is blessing him meantime, 12 to 17. Now Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. Notice in verse 12, he's working hard, which he should be, right? From the very beginning before sin came into the world, Genesis 2, 15, 
it says the Lord God put the man in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. So before sin came into the world, man was expected to work. And of course, after sin is in the world, man is expected to work. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, 16 to 15 says, If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. If they're not going to work, don't let them eat. And this is the church. This is an, an injunction on the church. It's an obligation of the church to teach that and to practice that. Ephesians 4, 28, Let him who steals... Steal no longer, but rather let him work, laboring with his own hands, so that he may be able to share with him who has need. So when there is a valid need, a legitimate need, we should not steal, whether stealing from others in terms of stealing private property or stealing from the government and the taxpayers. We should not steal but rather work with our own hands, labor, and have a surplus to be able to share with him who has a legitimate need. Ephesians 4, 28. Isaac is doing this in his own day. And when he does so, we are reminded in verse 12 that the blessing he has is not coming merely and simply because of his wisdom, his ingenuity, his natural skill. Yes, he has those things. He has power or strength. But it's not happening because of that. The ultimate cause is the Lord's blessing. Because if God wanted to create conflict, he could have created conflict so that in his business dealings, his business partners or the strangers he has to deal with would not respond favorably to him. Right? And if God had wanted... He could have prevented his flocks and herds from reproducing abundantly. If God had wanted, he could have made his fields not bring a good and fruitful harvest. God can prevent all of that. Correct? Yes. But he didn't. Not in Isaac's case. Verse 13, the man became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy. For he had possessions of flocks and herds and a great household so that the Philistines envied him. This is a stranger living in the land of the Philistines and the stranger miraculously is superseding the wealth and possessions of the natives. Why? Because the Lord blessed him. Verse 15, now all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father, the Philistines stopped up by filling them with earth. So now we have a dilemma or a difficulty. He needs the wells. He needs the resources of water for his own people and for his animals. But the Philistines are making it difficult. They're making it difficult on him. And not only are they making it difficult, 16, then Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us for you are too powerful for us. He welcomed him first and now he says, go away. Go away. Similar to what happened in the land of Egypt, right? The people, uh, Jacob and family migrated to Egypt. They were welcomed. And then after they became numerous and prosperous, then he says, ultimately, after much punishment, now go away, leave us. 
have nothing to do with us. This happens with worldly people. Um, So he complies, verse 17, and Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. He settles there in the valley of Gerar. This means that he was more in Gerar proper. Now in the valley of Gerar, farther away, they let him go and stay there. And then we will see in our next passage what happens when he's in the valley. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.